All right, there it is. Nice. Let's pray again. No. Uh, very recently, I was uh, able to go on a nice date with my wife downtown, and uh, we took the blue line because we didn't want to deal with traffic and everything like that. On the way back, I saw something that very interesting. We came off of the train, and there was a couple that was walking ahead of us, and all four of us are going to our car uh, that was in the parking lot. And the couple that was in front of us was, was walking like uh, they were just mugged, uh, like this. That's how they were walking, right? It looks like someone took baseball bat to their knees, all right? And they, but they were smiling. They were happy, and they were joking. And one of them dropped some money, and I picked it up and gave it to them, and they were very nice about it, and they were a nice couple. Why were they in pain? Well, it didn't take a whole lot of um, uh, detective work to figure that out. They were in exercise clothes. There were a lot of people in exercise clothes. They were runners. The Chicago Marathon was in town. Put two and two together. They did destroy their knees. <laughs> Tina has a friend who, uh, she told me she just had knee surgery on both knees. And then she went and ran the Chicago Marathon. She just put some tape and ran the marathon. Why would you do that to yourself? I think to myself. There's bikes, right? There's swimming pools. There's other ways to do exercise besides destroying your knees. Now that pain that they're feeling, uh, if someone else inflicted it upon them, they probably wouldn't be all that happy. I don't know if they'd still be walking on them. They'd probably be complaining, oh, my legs. They'd be in the hospital. What's wrong with my knees, doc? How bad is the damage? I was mugged. You know, somebody came with a bat and ah, took all my knees and took all my money, and now here I am. No, but they did it to themselves. Same level of pain. What's the difference between the complaining person on the hospital bed and the one that just walks through it and is smiling with their spouse as they go back to the car? perspective it's the same pain because I know it hurts but the difference is perspective you ever work out a little bit extra in the gym and the next morning feels like someone punched you in the gut but you're not crying because you know you did it to yourself why do you do that to yourself your perspective on that pain is different from that same level of pain if someone else inflicted it upon you so I think as we go through life, we experience pain. We experience episodes or trials, their difficulties. But the difference between that making you or breaking you, oftentimes, is your theological perspective of what's happening in that pain. One of the best resources in all of the Bible to help us with gaining that kind of perspective is the story of Joseph. It's the story of Joseph. And as we walk through his life, we can't read all of it because it's a lot. We are going to do his whole story in one shot. And some of you afterwards, how come you skip this part? You know, because we're, I, wanted, I want you to see the whole overarching arc for his life, not just the individual little episodes, but how everything fits together. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Eric will get one to you. We're going to be in Genesis, first book of the Bible. We're going to start in chapter 37, and we're going to move 
from there. So as I sort of recount his story, you can sort of turn and, and flip along. But if you just want to go directly to where we're going to start reading, that'll be chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, with his story starting in Genesis 37. Okay? It's easy to forget that Joseph, he was, he, was, he was a man. He was a regular guy, you know. Um, and he experiences pain that I think for most of us will really put what we go through, put it into some, some perspective. Some of us will have a hard time matching the difficulties that Joseph encounters. Some of you may feel like, no, I can go toe-to-toe with Joseph's encounters. Well, good, because this is here for you. Joseph is one of 12 brothers. There's only one younger than him, and most of those brothers are from uh, a different mom, the mom that his dad didn't favor. He's from the mom that his dad did favor, and he's his dad's favorite. Jacob loved Joseph in a way that he didn't love the other brothers. Some of the other brothers were disappointments, Simeon and Levi going and destroying that other village. Not Jacob's favorite, not Jacob's favorite but Joseph's his favorite. He even makes him this tunic, this coat, this cloak. You know, some translations say it's made of many colors, but it's a long robe that he would wear, and it sort of was a trophy to the fact that dad loves me the most. But he's, Joseph's kind of stupid. You know, he'll go up to his brothers and be like, check out my coat, man. What do you think? Where's your coat? Oh, you don't have one. Oh, oh, dad didn't give you a coat. He's kind of, he's either naive or a punk. Maybe he's a little bit of both. But more than that, his brothers already kind of uh, have this bubbling jealousy uh, for, o- over Joseph. And they direct his anger toward Joseph, not toward the one that's showing the favoritism. But Joseph has a pair of dreams, two dreams that he has. And he thinks he knows what they mean. In fact, he does know what they mean. In fact, he doesn't even have to explain what they mean. When he tells his brothers and when he tells his dad the, the dreams... He doesn't need to add explanation. They know what the dreams mean. He said, I was in a field and there were sheaves of wheat all bound. And we each had one, he's telling his brothers. And all of your sheaves of wheat were bowing down to mine. And that was a great dream. I woke up and had a cup of coffee and just thought, isn't that a great dream? I'm going to share that with my brothers. (laughs) And then I had another dream. That there were 11 stars next to mine and a sun and a moon. And the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were all bowing down to my star. Isn't that a great dream? I think that's going to be a movie one day. They hated him. They hated him. Even his dad told him, what kind of dream is this? Like, shut up. But he contemplated it. That's uh Chapter 37, verse 11. The father kept the saying in his heart, but the brothers hated it. So his his dad would use Joseph to go spy on the brothers. I don't know why Joseph isn't out there working, but the brothers are out there getting to work. And he would use Joseph as the guy to go and kind of spy on them and come back and give them a report. The brothers are doing this. The brothers are doing that. I saw Reuben talking with a Canaanite woman. I know you don't like that, Dad. That was the setup that they had going. Another reason to hate Joseph. He tells Joseph, go and check them out. I think they're out by Shechem. 
go, go see where they are. Joseph goes, okay, goes and checks them out, and he doesn't see them there, and he asks around, where are they? Oh, they're over at Dothan. He goes over to Dothan, and then a plan ensues. They see this punk coming over the horizon, and they say, isn't that, here comes, here comes this dreamer, the guy with the double dreams. Well, we're all bowing down to him. Let's show him a thing or two. And they don't want to just play a prank. They want to end his life. They want to kill him. Luckily, Reuben steps in and is like, whoa, that's a little too far, guys. How about we just throw him in a pit? Can we just throw him in a pit? And Reuben's thinking in the back of his mind, I'll just get him out later and return him to dad because that's too far. So they take him, they throw him in an empty well with no water in it. He's begging for his life. They don't listen. Then a caravan comes by and they're selling things like myrrh and merchandise. I got a great idea. One of the brothers says, let's sell him. Why should we just leave him there not getting anything out of it? We can at least sell him and get some money out of it. So while Reuben's gone, they decide let's sell him. They sell him. Reuben comes back. What would you guys do? What are we going to tell dad? Well, here's what we're going to do. We kept that lovely tunic of his. We didn't want him to go in with that. Let's tear it up and put some goat's blood on it and just tell him a wild beast. Kill him. So they come back and that's the story that they give Jacob. Your son is dead. A wild beast destroyed him. Jacob is obviously devastated. But Joseph, the storyline picks up where he is sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, and goes through a series of ups and downs as if that wasn't enough already. He had these two dreams, and when he explains the dreams, it just gets him into trouble. He ends up in a pit. He's only rescued from the pit to be delivered into slavery, to go into a land that's not his own, a language that he doesn't understand. And he has to do, get a crash course while he's a slave. He's working for Potiphar, who's a high-up official in the Egyptian uh, palace. And everything he does is gold. Joseph has a Midas touch. If, if he cleans something, it's the most immaculate thing you've ever seen in his life. If he translates something, it's the best translation you've ever seen in your life. If he says something, it's the wisest thing that's ever been uh, heard coming out of a slave's mouth. And so he's immediately put in charge of all the slaves, all the servants. So now he's dressed a little better and he looks a little better. And all the slaves and all the servants, no matter where they're from, they have to report to him because in Potiphar's house, he's the man. Everybody liked Joseph. So now he goes from the pit to some prosperity. He goes from that hole to some place of, of success. The problem is one of those people that really liked Joseph was Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife really wanted Joseph. Not to just hang out and watch a movie. She wanted more than that. To the fact where one time they're alone and she tells him, have your way with me, take me, lie with me. He's like, no, I'm out of here. As he runs, she takes his cloak. She's really ticked off that she got rejected. I thought I was, you know, unrejectable. Joseph didn't reject her because she was ugly. Joseph didn't reject her because she smelled bad. He rejected her because he feared God and knew that would have been wrong. As he ran away, she kept the cloak. She complained, oh. He tried, to, he tried to take me. He tried to do, have his way with me, blah, blah, blah. Here's the evidence. This is cloak. Potiphar obviously throws him in jail. He's not going to take Joseph's word over his wife's word. 
throws them in jail. From the pit to prosperity to a dark jail cell. That's not the kind of jails that we have today where there's a TV, a weight room, uh, a platter of food, an Egyptian hole. And now he's stuck in that pit, probably wondering what in the world was up with those two dreams. All I've been doing is bowing to people. I'm a slave. I'm a, you know, my, my brothers dominated me and threw me in a pit. Then I thought something was happening. Then I get taken advantage of, lied about, and now I'm in, a, in jail, and I'm innocent. I didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve that. But he's not saying these things. As the author lays this out, we don't hear complaints from Joseph. We don't hear him crying about it. We don't hear him complaining about it. We don't hear him shaking his fist at God about it. That's not to say he didn't have moments of doubt, but we're not let in to see that Joseph is struggling with it in that way. But it's, it's, maybe the author doesn't have to supply those notes because it's obvious when you read that. How would you feel? How would you feel about your brothers? How would you feel about the predicament that you're in? I want to pause in chapter 40 because we're going to keep flying through, but I want to pause and stop in chapter 40. And just let's, let's pause for a minute, swoop in, and look at this episode in the jail cell. Chapter 40, starting verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense. Two guys, the cupbearer, the guy that would taste the Pharaoh's food before it went to the Pharaoh's mouth, and the baker, the guy responsible for making Pharaoh fat. That was a joke, whatever. Verse 3, he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So now there's three guys in that prison, the cupbearer, the baker, and Joseph. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. Joseph is serving. Now he's a servant in the jail cell. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. So another pair of dreams. But this time, instead of two dreams for Joseph, it's two dreams to two other guys that are with him in custody. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there was no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So in other words, they, they knew they didn't just have a dream, a random dream. They knew that this was a given dream. And if a dream is given then it has to have a meaning, but they didn't have access to the meaning, so it's driving them nuts. What in the world does that dream that I have mean? It must mean something. Something's coming. Something's going to happen, but I can't look out for it because I have no idea what the dream means. Joseph said, well, duh, God is the one that gives meaning. I know him. He's done it for me before. Please tell them to me. Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer goes first, told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. That's the dream. 
Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. Almost like immediate. He saw it. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So right now, your face is downcast. He asked him, why are your faces so downcast? You know, like you're like this, a big cloud over your head. He says, in three days, you're going to be like this. Because Pharaoh's going to lift up your head and bring you back to the position that you were in. And it's going to be good. But now let me ask you a favor. <laughs> remember me when you're there next to your Pharaoh. Can you tell him about me? He says, verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. In other words, I'm innocent. Could you please plead my innocence with Pharaoh once you're in favor with him again? Because that's what's going to happen in three days. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for the Pharaoh. But the birds were eating out of it, out of the basket on my head. That's the dream. Joseph sees it. He knows it. Verse 18. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head too. With a noose, he's going to hang you. The birds will eat the flesh off your bones. No good news, bad news, just bad news. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, interesting way to celebrate, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. It's Pharaoh's birthday, and he's like, you know what I want to do? I want to take one guy in jail and put him back into, into the position he used to be in, but let's take the other guy and hang him. They didn't have movies. I guess that's how he entertained himself. And in that moment, the cupbearer is supposed to remember Joseph's request. But the verse, verse 23 tells us that the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through the life of Joseph, that kicks me in the gut a little bit more than some of the other episodes. Even though his brothers did a worse thing for him, it's just there's a glimmer of hope, a way to get out. And all he needs is a guy to remember this great thing that Joseph did for him, and he forgot Joseph. Joseph obviously feels forgotten. Two days go by, three days go by, some time goes by, and he realizes this guy never said anything to Pharaoh. I'm forgotten. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy when you're in a time of difficulty to first think about all the people that forgot about you. And eventually you back it up to God. The one person that can do anything about your circumstance that doesn't seem to be doing anything about your circumstances is God who's forgotten you. So Joseph is a forgotten person, maybe calls into question those dreams that he had. Whatever happened to those? Maybe God's playing a game. 
gives me these dreams to get me all happy about it. When I get happy about it, my brothers get mad at me and they throw me in jail. And then now, uh, ironically, I'm using my interpretational abilities to help other people get out of jail. But my interpretational abilities have done nothing for me but put me in pits and prisons. What kind of spiritual gift is that? After two whole years, two whole years after that incident, God does step in with another pair of dreams. This time Pharaoh gets the dream. And we don't have time to read all of it, but Pharaoh gets a pair of dreams and he's befuddled, he's confused. He asks his people, what does this mean? No one can interpret it for him. He's driven mad by this. Finally, the cupbearer remembers. There was a guy in prison. He was pretty good with dreams. Well, bring him here. Let's see what he's got. Pharaoh gives him the dream. Joseph has the interpretation immediately. He tells him, it's God, God gives the interpretation. I'm not, it's God, but here's, here's what it means. There's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. Here's how you should prepare for it. Pharaoh is immediately convinced that this is exactly the interpretation. This is exactly it. And he says, well, who should we put in charge of this? How about the guy that seems to have the inside track with God? How about the guy that seems to have the inside track with, with this kind of special knowledge? Let's put Joseph in charge. He makes Joseph second only to himself. Remember Potiphar? He's got a bow to Joseph now. Potiphar's wife has a bow to Joseph now. Everyone in the land, not just the servants, bows to Joseph. Suddenly he thinks he... He's, he's thrust into a position of prominence, of power, of authority, and he would have never seen that coming. There's no way that that could have happened unless God orchestrated it with these weird dreams he keeps popping into people's heads. God did it. God's fingerprints are all over it. Now the author wants to return us back to this, the part about his brothers, right? Because this is how the whole mess started. His brother's throwing him in a pit. That's how this started. What about those guys? And what about Joseph's perspective on those guys? Now here's one of the things that will most skew your perspective on any circumstance you're going through. The people that caused this circumstance in your life, the people that caused that hurt, the people that have abused you, have messed with you, have attacked you, have verbally slandered you, that everything is their fault. And if only they would be wiped away, or if only they would be out of my life, or if only they were never in my life to begin with, I wouldn't be here. Bad perspective. See, because Joseph could have easily been consumed with hatred toward his brother. He could have been consumed. Well, I wonder where those guys are now. I wonder, I'm going to take them and throw them in a pit. I'm going to take them. And don't we love, we love those stories, the revenge stories. We love watching those movies where the, the hero is beat up and beat up, and then finally at the end... One by one, he gets them all back. No, those stories make millions of dollars. But this is not a revenge story. Although, if anyone has the ability to get revenge, it's Joseph. He has almost unlimited power, resources. He can do anything he wants. But ironically, his brothers come to him. Now imagine this. The people that have caused hurt in your life, the biggest in your life, the people that have, that have caused the darkest episodes in your life now come to you and ask you for help. 
Now, it's one thing for you to just ignore them. They live their life. I live my life. And I'm just leave them alone. And let me just live my life alone. But then they come knocking. And your perspective is challenged. The famine in the land hits after the success of the seven years. But no one was really storing up grain except for Egypt because Joseph gave them that tip. The seven years of plenty isn't going to last forever. You've got to store this stuff up. Well, everyone didn't do that. And now there's people starving all over the place and they're coming to Egypt for help. Jacob sends his brothers to Egypt. They see Joseph. They bow down in front of him asking for help. And he remembers his dreams. God doesn't lie. Here it is. Those stars, those sheaves of wheat, it's happening. The series that we've, the way we've named this Genesis series is that we're walking with a promise-keeping God. And God, you issued in those two dreams a promise to Joseph. Here's how it's going to play out, Joseph. And he allowed episodes to happen in his life that would tempt Joseph to think there's no way that this is going to happen. I cannot possibly fulfill those dreams in a pit. There's no way those dreams can happen if I'm in prison. But God uses those circumstances to make it happen. Even when it's hard for us to see how it's going to pan out. Here he is with his brothers in front of him. He plays a couple games with them. He decides to have a little bit of fun with this. He tells them, you guys are spies. No, we're not spies. We promise. We have another brother, Benjamin, at home. Oh yeah, well go get him and bring him back and prove to me. Otherwise, if you can't bring him back, then you guys are spies. You know, they go and they get the brother and they bring him back. Even though they had to convince the dad to do it, the dad's like, what are you talking about? You lost Joseph, you know. Uh, they kept Simeon over there when the brothers came back. You lost Simeon, and, and now you're going to lose Benjamin too? What's wrong with you guys, you know? So they, they come back, and Joseph has a couple episodes where he's got to turn away from them, and he just weeps. And if we didn't have those little clues in the text, Joseph would seem like a robot, right? He's in a pit. He's in prison. He rises to power. His brothers come and ask for help. He's cool. Everything's cool. Joseph doesn't have feelings. No, he weeps. He has a couple episodes where he just completely breaks down. A man of power, a man of prestige, a man who has everything he needs, everything he wants, and he breaks down and weeps like a baby. Eventually, he reveals to his brothers his identity when he's convinced that uh, all his brothers are, are there. And he's convinced that the timing is right. He reveals his identity to his brothers and he forgives them. There's no way they could possibly make this up to him. There's no way they could go back and erase the things that they've done. They can't offer him anything that he doesn't already have. He forgives them. That's amazing. And I don't think that Joseph can have the perspective that he has that we're going to look at in a minute this amazing perspective that he has, I don't think it's possible for him to have it if he wasn't able to forgive his brothers. We're going to look at that in chapter 50. The last chapter of the book of Genesis has one of the most potent paragraphs in the entire book. Genesis chapter 50. The last paragraph is about Joseph's death. Before he dies, there's this episode, this confrontation, final confrontation with his brothers. Jacob's passed away. Jacob's been buried. 
verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did for, to him. You remember when Esau wanted to kill Jacob, but he waited for his dad to die first? And that gave Jacob time to run away and try to make other plans. They're thinking similarly, maybe Joseph is just waiting for dad to die. And now that dad is gone, now he's going to exact his revenge. There's no way he can't be storing, storing up revenge all these years. There's no way he's just, he's just like, okay, we're cool. I mean, there's no way. Because we've caused this pain. We've hurt him. We've done evil to him. There's no way he's not just chomping at the bit, waiting to return evil to us. Well, that's their perspective. They don't understand Joseph's perspective. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I just want to pause there a second and just, again, this theme of weeping, brokenness, and forgiveness. I think some of us want to skip to forgiveness and we don't allow the pain to shatter us. It's supposed to hurt. If you're just, you know, keeping it inside, and like, I forgive you, I forgive you, I'm fine. Yeah, no, we're fine, no, we're fine. <laughs> you didn't forgive them. You're storing it up inside of you and it's eating you from the inside out and it's not forgiveness. He weeps right in front of them. He's not, like, he's not afraid to show them that this, this is the pain you've caused. He's not doing it for show. But he weeps while they ask for forgiveness. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, humanly speaking, I could do whatever I want to you right now. I could do whatever I want to you right now. But that's humanly speaking. I can't use my power however I want. I can't use my position however I want. I report to God. So what's God's perspective on this? That's what Joseph is saying. Don't fear me. <laughs> And don't be afraid, because I'm not in the place of God to dole out judgment. He didn't have to wait for the book of Romans to be written for Paul to tell him, let God's vengeance be carried out. Don't take God's vengeance from him. Vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. He understood that already. If, if, if the brothers have something coming to them, it's because God's going to give it to them, not because I'm going to give it to them. So he says, I'm, I'm not in the place of God. Verse 20 as for you, now here it is, you meant evil against me, but God meant those same evil actions, God meant it for good. The same actions had two purposes. Humanly speaking, those actions were perpetrated for evil, but God, working behind the scenes, allowed those actions to happen because God is intending to use it for good. Same amount of pain, same kind of beat up knees, but from one perspective, 
it's pain like you were beat up from another perspective. It's the glory of a marathon. That's God's perspective. And that's the perspective that Joseph adopted. He didn't just look at the pain and go, why am I experiencing this pain? Doc, give me some medicine. He looked at the pain and kept trusting that some other shoe was going to drop that would put all of these things in perspective. This is what he explains to his brothers. Don't fear, I'm not in the place of God. But you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. How in the world is that possible? To speak kindly to a gang of murderous intent people that did everything they could to make your life a wreck. To speak kindly to them. To take care of their kids. To use all your resources to make their lives better. How is that possible? It's only possible because he's like, it's, 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 he sees this perspective where it's ironic. Because these guys, yeah, they meant a lot of evil, but little did they know they were pawns on God's chessboard to make me win. God is in charge. You flip to the next book, it's the book of Exodus, and one of the prevailing themes in that book is God takes all of the Egyptian gods and he flicks them off the board, one by one. I mean, why did he make the sun go black? Because they worship the, the sun god, Ra. Here's what I'm going to do to your sun god. I'm going to make him blind for it. Flick him off the board. You worship this deity with little frogs, I'm going to rain frogs on you. You worship the Nile because the Nile River is, you, you worship the Nile god? I'm turning to blood. You can't access it now. Just flicking those gods off the board. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Exodus keeps telling us that he is in charge of Pharaoh's heart, doesn't it? It tells us that he, 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 he would shift Pharaoh's heart and harden it so that he can finish flicking those guys off the board because Pharaoh was a punk. He would have just said, ah! No, no, no. There's a, there's a certain number of plagues I want to get done here. And for it to get done, I've got to harden Pharaoh's heart a little bit so I can let this play out. God is over the chessboard. See, we see a bunch of moving pieces. And why is this happening? Why is this happening? And sometimes we don't know the answer. But Joseph is saying, I know the one who knows the answer, and that's good enough for me. He adopts God's perspective to take the bigger picture. And now for him to do that, he has to see his life as more than just his life. He's got to see his life playing out in a bigger picture. In fact, here's an issue that we have, okay? Here's an issue that we have. We too often interpret Bible passages individualistically. We'll take a Bible passage and our number one question is what? What does this mean for me? What does this have to do exactly for me? In fact, right now, as I'm talking about forgiveness and pain and suffering, it's second nature to just go to the person that you're having trouble forgiving, the people that have abused you in your life. It's an immediate personal application. And that's okay. That's good. But it's weak if we don't take it to the next level of the bigger picture than that. So in other words, we look at our lives and go, okay, there's a lot of episodes of pain and trial, but maybe God is working it together to produce something good for me. See, it's still a little bit myopic. It's still a little bit focused on, 
on me, the individual, and how life is playing out for me, the individual. The reason why that's dangerous is because the story of Joseph is not put here primarily to help you with your personal problems. It speaks to it, but that's not the overall intent. In fact, technically, this isn't really a story about Joseph. It's a story about Jacob. I want to show that to you. If you flip back to chapter 37, five times throughout the book of Genesis, there's a chapter heading. Now, originally, Genesis didn't have these chapters, 31, 32, 33, right? So right here, we're looking at chapter 37. Those chapter numbers weren't there. Those verse numbers weren't there. But Genesis did have chapter headings. They were called toledotes, generations. These were the generations of so-and-so. And then you have a section. This is the generation, these are the generations of Abraham, a huge section on Abraham, right? Look at the chapter 37, verse 2. Verse 2 should actually be the first verse of 37. These are the generations of Jacob. And then how does the next line start? Joseph, being 17 years old, see the story involves Joseph but it's really ultimately about Jacob. Why? Why is it about Jacob? When you get to the end, it's how Jacob feels about this situation. Jacob is the one that gives blessings to his sons, and then the episode ends with the brothers burying Jacob. Why is it, why is it, why is it bookended by Jacob? And then Jacob is kind of in between a little bit. Jacob is the carrier of the promise. And the author doesn't want us to forget that this book is not about random people. Oh, let me tell you about this guy. He was a great hero of the faith. Oh, let me tell you about this guy. He's a real good story to learn from. Oh, this guy's life story is going to really give you five tips on a healthy marriage. The reason why we're following the particular people that we're following in the book of Genesis is because they carry a promise of blessing that starts way back in Genesis 3.15. As soon as Adam and Eve bit that fruit, God goes, okay, I'm going to solve this through the seed of the woman. Okay. Then he grabs Abraham and says, specifically a seed from a woman from this guy's clan. When he gives the blessing to his sons and he gets to Judah, he goes, Judah, the kingship is going to reign with you. So when a king eventually comes, the king is going to have to come through Judah, specifically through Judah, who's part of Abraham. So the, the promise is being traced, right? You could take a highlighter and trace that promise throughout the book. And the story of Joseph is about that promise. It's not a random story in there about, hey guys, don't forget to forgive people. Anyway, the Exodus, do you, see, do you see that? It's really about Jacob's blessing and how that blessing is going to survive. So the story kind of swoops down and gets a little bit nitty gritty with the story of Joseph and it's trying to paint a picture of how God works because that's the exact way that God's been working the entire book of Genesis. That's exactly how it's going to work in the book of Exodus. Even when it looks dark, even when it looks impossible, God carries his promise through anyway. Joseph's life is a picture of what we're going to read in Genesis, I mean in Exodus. You remember back when uh, Abraham was told, now I'm going to bless you and you're going to have all kinds of people. An entire nation is going to come out of you. And all the world, the nations of the world are going to be blessed by this, by this people that come out of you. But, and a little side note, they're going to be slaves for four centuries. But don't worry about it. After those four centuries, it's going to be a blessing to the world. You know, easy little detail to forget until you get to Exodus. 
Well, how does that slavery start? How does that big moment of slavery, that moment, that, that pit of darkness that Israel has to experience before they get the blessing finally, how does that begin? Well, Joseph's story lets us see how that begins. But not only that, Joseph's story illustrates that whole thing. Joseph is a slave. He's in a pit. He's in jail. Egypt owns him. He rises to a prominent position of power. And now, except for Pharaoh, he owns Egypt. That is an illustration of what Israel is going to go through in the book of Exodus. So the book of the story of Joseph is not just how to forgive people. The story of Joseph is not, hey, when you get banged up, love people anyway. That's true, but it's a weak perspective if we just take it and go, Joseph did it, I'm going to do it. Here's his personal particular problem, and I'm going to apply it to my personal particular problem. Joseph's story played a part. It was a cog in a much bigger story. What God was trying to demonstrate through Joseph's life was that God has a plan for redemption and that redemption can come through even after episodes of darkness. This is how God shows off to the world, how he operates, how he works. Another reason why we know that, another reason why we know that, Joseph didn't adopt the personal perspective either. If you go back to chapter 50, you're going to notice that Joseph does not say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for me. That's how we apply it. You meant it for evil to mess up my life, but God put my life back together. And so no matter what bad things happen in my personal life, my personal life is always going to come out better afterwards because God's got my back. That's not what he says. Look what he says, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me personally, but God meant it for good. What kind of good? Not to bring me into power, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Joseph is saying the purpose that God had and what happened to me is so that people can eat. He brought me to power so that we can provide food for the people starving around us. He didn't say God provided it so that I could be next to Pharaoh. That is, a, that is not a subtle shift from what we're normally used to. What we're used to is that sermon was okay. I didn't really get a lot of it out of it for me. Oh, man, that sermon was awesome. I had three points on how to be a better me. Now, I'm not saying that's just you, but this is the literature that's out there. You just go to a regular Christian bookstore or go to Amazon, top Christian books, how God is going to hook you up, how God is going to personally bless you, how to turn your trials into your own personal triumphs. Guys, some of that's true. Some of that's true. But that's not a broad enough picture. You might be going through something and you're having a hard time seeing this and going, oh, I, I get it. I get it. And the reason why sometimes we have a hard time is because we're looking for a silver lining that we define as personal and individual to our own idea of personal success. So my dad used to do these things to me or my boss verbally abuses me or these things were stolen from me or this experience has haunted me, how is God going to turn that into a better job or a better situation or a better marriage? Maybe. Maybe. But even more than that. See, that's a bigger perspective than we normally have. But an even broader perspective than that 
would be to realize that God allows those episodes in our lives to display the gospel to people around you so that other people can be fed in your life. Now, I'm not saying that that verse is a, is a metaphor for feeding people spiritually. But God is concerned with the program that works for the world. Genesis 3.15 is for the world. When he told Abraham, I'm going to choose you, he didn't say, I'm going to choose you because I'm going to make you really successful. That was part of it. But the reason why I'm going to make you successful is so that all the tribes and nations of the earth who don't have a relationship with me can have a relationship with me because I'm going to bring a mediator from your family that bridges man and God together. That's the purpose. It's not about Abraham. Joseph's story is not about Joseph. Joseph is another pawn. He's another cog, and he sees that. The reason why God shifted me here was not to just you know, make me feel good. The reason why God did that is so that other people can be helped. And guys, we know the full story of the gospel. As a church, we can feed people and try to house the homeless, but the ultimate, most profound problem that the people in the world have that don't know Jesus Christ is that they don't know Jesus Christ. And maybe the trials that we experience in our lives paint a better picture of redemption so that people that are witnessing our lives can see the gospel in action. So when I look at my trials and I look at my difficulties, instead of just asking, how is this going to turn out so that my life can be better? Maybe I should be asking, how can this turn out so that other people's lives can be better as they witness my life? So you're stuck in the middle of a trial, you're stuck in the middle of a pit right now, but you worship God anyway. See, if your life is going perfectly well and you worship God and you're all smiley and happy and you talk about the joy of the Lord, they're going to be like, well, duh. Just like Satan, right? Remember when he accused Job? Of course Job worships you. You give him everything. Anybody would worship you if you gave him everything. A better witness to the world is when you're getting your teeth kicked in by life, you still worship God, and they're going to go, what is up with that? So God wants a splash effect. He wants to use the difficulties in your life not to just promote you, but in, in making your life more into what he wants it to be, he wants to see a splash effect into other people in your life so they can witness it and go, what is this reason for the hope that you have? Give me a reason for this hope that you have. You have this hope that is undying, unchallenged. No matter how many pits and prisons you find yourself in, you keep coming out of there with your face gleaming with hope. I want some of that. That's how God works his program in the world. We want to adopt a bigger perspective because God has a bigger plan for those episodes in our lives that we wish weren't there. And the plan doesn't just end with us. It splashes over to our spouses, our kids, our families, our neighbors, our church, our communities. In order to stay on track, we need to adopt that bigger perspective. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to um, recount to you all of the ways in which life has been difficult for us. We have all our easy ways of dealing with it. We, we put on our smiles and our happy faces. We refuse to break down. We don't cry. We, we pretend like everything's okay. Or we go the other way and we're just broken down and we're just wallowing in our own pity and Maybe we blame you. Maybe we feel like you've forgotten us. People have forgotten us. That we're just forgotten leftover scraps that have been left in a pit somewhere. 
But Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning, we ask that you would give us the godly perspective. That you would allow us to see things through your eyes so that the pains and the hurts in our lives are not just pain that just puts us in the hospital, but rather it's the pain of a long, lengthy uh, marathon that ends with victory and a medal and cheering. And God, we're not at that finish line yet. We need your strength for the journey. We need your broader perspective of what running the race looks like, running it to win, and how it can affect the people around us when we adopt the bigger perspective. So we ask you would display the gospel in our lives. If it takes pain, so be it. Give us what we need through that pain. But we pray that when we embrace victory, that we wouldn't forget you. We would explain to people around us and display to the people around us in our lives that everything good comes from you. And we need your perspective to do that. We ask you to help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're able, I ask you to stand and, and close in a song of worship with us.